Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolic and my guest today is Dr. James Kirby, who is a senior lecturer and clinical psychologist at the University of Queensland. He has a broad range of research interests in compassion science. However, specific research areas that he enjoys most of his time in is examining compassion-focused therapy, examining compassion with children, what fears, blocks, and resistance people have towards compassion, and developing and evaluating compassion interventions. James also holds a visiting fellowship at the Centre for Compassion and Altruism Research and education at Stanford University, and is an honorary member of the Compassionate Mind Foundation in the United Kingdom. Today, we talk everything compassion-focused therapy, and it's a pleasure of mine because it's so closely related to acceptance and commitment therapy that is one of my interests. So I know you're going to enjoy this, and I certainly have. The models that uh, Dr. Kirby brings up in in our conversation are fantastic and so applicable and i think you'll find it you know really enjoyable and you know a lot to learn from today's conversation so enjoy james a big thank you for coming onto the program today to to talk about something that's dear to my heart because it's so close to the acceptance and commitment therapy work that i'm you know passionate and and, and have a strong love for uh Maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and you know, our topic today as well. Oh, thank you very much for having me here, Nesh. It's a real delight. Uh, yeah, definitely there are a lot of parallels between um, compassion-focused therapy, which is a lot of the work uh, I focus in on, um, and, and acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, there's a lot of people actually uh, really pushing a kind of integration of the two as well, um, people like Dennis Tersh and so on from, from the U.S., uh, yeah, so my work is kind of focused on uh, compassion-focused therapy and how it how it kind of is applied clinically uh, to help people. Uh, but also, I'm interested in uh, sort of the decision-making model to compassionate behaviour. So that's just uh, outside of the the kind of I guess clinical realm, and more in, in in trying to understand you know what are some of the costs and benefits we we pragmatically weigh up um as we choose to to be compassionate can you describe for some of our listeners obviously we've got clinicians who are listening to us and and also lay people people who enjoy the 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 space of psychology can you explain a little bit about what compassion focused therapy is sure so compassion focused therapy uh, was developed uh by a person called uh professor paul gilbert and uh he developed it (laughs) back in the probably early 80s uh yet it's it's had a perhaps a 
a, a slow arc into making its way uh, to Australia. Um, so I think the therapies are still going by ship. Uh, even though we've got the internet so sometimes when paul hears it's a new therapy he kind of goes no i've been writing about this since the early 80s um which i of course love because uh it, it was uh kind of forming before i was born so i can always stir him up a little bit with that but what paul uh was was really interested in was uh, evolutionary models to understanding mental health. Uh, so he did his PhD at the University of Edinburgh, which had a very large evolutionary psych department. And so he was really interested in how um, these evolutionary models uh, might help us understand things like depression. And, um, and that was his major focus. And then in working with that um, evolutionary model um, and working with those uh, with depression, uh, you know, he was coming into contact with um, often with clients, the real difficulty people had with using an inner tone of voice uh, that was warm uh, and compassionate or kind, if you will. And then that became the real genesis of compassion-focused therapy developing because uh, he would ask, uh, you know, the clients he was seeing, you know, would they be willing uh, to try speaking in this this kind of inner tone, which is kind and friendly, and they would be um, uh, no way, not a chance. <laughs> and so that led to trying to unpack what the worries or concerns uh, would be for them if they were to start to try this kind of uh, alternative way um, of, of, of relating. And then Paul, through the evolutionary model, try, uh, uh, links that kind of inner relating style, which is warm and compassionate, uh, to you know uh, physiological systems within the body, which of course links into um, how our brain kind of will then um, interact with that physiology, which obviously influences what we kind of attend to, think about, and feel about. So he's got this kind of big integrative model that tries to link all those processes in, which gives rise to um, compassion-focused therapy. Can you talk us through a little bit in terms of? how evolutionary models uh, somewhat explain this angst towards being compassionate why can why are we so harsh on ourselves how is that <laughs> beneficial you know and 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 you know protective and and has been you know helpful to date and obviously um you know how we look to address those in in therapy yeah uh, there are a, a range of of competing factors that have probably shaped our tendency uh, to adopt at times very harsh and self-critical uh, relating styles. Um, and, and linking it in to, to, to Paul's model, it kind of at one of the, the at one of the core components of his model is often referred to in sort of its most simplistic way as the three circle model of affect regulation. And really, this is kind of linking emotions into uh, motivations. So he kind of puts forward this um, theory, uh, which is all called social mentality theory. And part of this theory is this idea that we have these basic um, uh, social uh, motives that we're trying to enact um, in order uh, to interact and, and make sense and get our basic needs met. So there'll be things like um, avoiding harm. But equally pursuing things that are really important to us. And they could be things like, you know, finding a house, finding a partner, securing food, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but equally, uh, other important process is being able to be in a state of contentment. 
Uh, and so they're kind of referred to as uh, the three circles of, of threat, self-protect, avoiding harm, the drive system, which is about pursuing things that are important, and then um, which we often call the blue circle, and then uh, a green circle, which is uh, linked into this state of contentment or, or being at ease and no longer wanting. Uh, so those three are, are kind of emotional systems linked into specific motivations. And uh, what Paul kind of uh, postulates is that red circle threat self-protect system is kind of our default operating system. Uh, it will always hijack attention because it's much safer for you to be, um, uh, you know, better safe than sorry, sorry, is the, is the key principle to that system. And so evolution isn't interested in you being happy. Evolution is interested in, and life is interested in you staying alive. And so this, this threat system often kicks off very quickly. And uh, there's a lot of studies sort of looking at how um, bad tends to be more dominant than good um, at, at, in its simplest form. And so we have a tendency to, to generate towards that. Um, and equally, therefore, when we have internal threats come up within our own mind or dangers or worries, or something happens in our environment, which we weren't wanting, so a disappointment, a failure, a setback, we can relate to ourselves from that kind of threat-based system, which has a lot of uh, anger in it. So emotions kind of hooked up in there are things like anger, anxiety, fear. And so we can kind of relate to ourselves from this system with anger. And that anger directed inwards is, is often referred to as uh, self-criticism. <laughs> It's in in some sense, it's much better to see danger where there is none than not see danger where there is some, because you can you can make that error once, and and it could potentially be a fatal error, versus if you make a a, a false positive error, and you know uh, you're not harmed. Well, it's neither here nor there um, because you wouldn't have been uh, harmed either way. Having said that. You know, you can be self-critical or, or in fear, you know, anxious uh, or even feeling you know, helpless and hopeless, you know, move, moving forward, you know, uh, ongoing. So it's a, it's a, such a useful model in, in that we've observed that be the case in evolutionary terms, um, you know, but with the, you know, more more mindful um, and, and cognitive sort of space where we're really looking to how, how can we not override, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, but but more so you know, appreciate the protection um, uh, motive because it's got great value and, and and continues to have great value in today's society. Oh, you're absolutely spot on. So a lot of people will come in and, 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 and kind of some goals can be to get rid of that kind of threat system because it's been so dominant. Uh, which makes perfect sense. You know, they want to come and it's like, well, what, what would you like from therapy? And it'd be like, I'd hate to feel angry. I want to get rid of this anxiety. I'm sick of feeling it all of the time. But of course, we can't get rid of it. The idea is it is signaling to us something important that there's a danger or worry. So there is something there and it's trying to understand what that is. So we can um, perhaps, as you mentioned, appreciate it more or understand it better. And then also be able to let it know, hey, it, it's okay, I've got this, and, or reassure ourselves, whatever it might be, in order to, to deal with the situation or event that kind of set the alarm off. So the idea is, is you know, it's there, it's how we work with it, which becomes key. And, and for some people, the environments in which they're raised can cause that system to become highly sensitive. 
so, you know, if, if you're, you know, growing up in a family where there's a lot of unpredictability um, and then uh, when there is some kind of mishap, there's some punitive parenting practices, perhaps hitting or yelling or screaming or it's dangerous, one thing you would like to be doing in that situation is to be highly sensitive to any potential threat or anticipatory danger and try to ensure that you are safe or hidden from that. Uh, and then, of course, that then generalises outside of the family home potentially because this has been a developed over many, many years. So you've got this highly sensitive threat operating system that picks up on this uh, uh, you know, danger very, very quickly, but then you're in this kind of heightened state constantly and you don't have this capacity really to have this sense of freedom, right? This freedom just go out and explore and so on. So, and we also have environments outside of the home which are highly competitive. Uh, so when you've got a very highly competitive environment, there's a big emphasis placed on where you are compared to others. And uh, that can often bring in uh, a sense of uh, hypermonitoring again, social comparison, um, and then kind of, you know, relating styles, if dominant with the red circle of I'm a loser, I'm falling behind, I'm not as good as. And then um, that can be uh, the critical stuff, which can lead to depression and so on. But equally, it can lead to that really um, uh, heightened anxiety and, and, and can be overcompensated with uh, perfectionistic kind of behaviours. So it's a real catch-22. It's terrible. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing, a, you know, a lot of overlap as well with some of that maybe schema uh, work terminology with, you know, the, the, the sensitive, you know, uh, uh, you know mode or, or vulnerable child um, or the protector, uh, and, 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 and they all have merit and, and value in keeping us safe or, or you know, um, uh, you know, performing different, obviously, tasks. Uh, but also, um, I'm hearing as well with the, uh, some of the examples that we often can hear as, as therapists and, and from others as well is those really extreme cases where, you know, there is physical violence or abuse and the like, but... It's really that competitive side, uh, 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 as well as you know those other more more um, you know acute uh, and frightening things that a lot of us are living in on a daily basis. Like you know the, the the competitive nature is just there all the time, with or without a difficult family life. That's, um, ex that's exactly right. We, I mean, we, we you don't have to have experienced that kind of a family of origin, which is just a tragic experience to have to go through um, and adverse childhood experiences are quite common it's terrible um, but equally you could have had a, a wonderful family of origin with lots of memories of warmth and and you know safeness and and joy um, but be in in context which are uh, very hyper competitive where you know whether or not you get a bonus is based on how many sales you make or um, and, and those kinds of key performance indicators uh, over time tend to go up, not, not down. So it just becomes harder and harder and harder um, sometimes to, to break into that. And, uh, and often we're, we're kind of told from a cultural kind of um, perspective that really uh, it's how hard you try or the amount of input you put into it that will determine 
the output um, kind of ties into that kind of pursuit of happiness kind of idea. You just got to keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Um, that's easy to do to a degree if everything else is taken care of. Uh, but if you're juggling competing demands, looking after, say, an elderly parent um, or having to hold down a couple of different jobs to pay the rent and so on, it's very hard to pursue the things that are most intrinsically rewarding for you as you're trying to ensure the other people in your life are, are being cared for. So the push, push, push mindset of competitiveness can can really chip away at one's mental health and, and have really disastrous impacts. So Compassion-focused therapy tries to shift out of uh, a dominant competitive mindset, and particularly in relation to oneself, and shift into a, a compassionate motivation. I'm, I'm in, in so many ways hearing just, just being human means that you know you are part of this space, and you know that if if you're fortunate enough, if I can use that terminology, um, you know, to have parents who. Let's let, let, let's just use some stereotypes. You know, mum mum is a lawyer and you know, dad's a doctor. You know, the the context in relational frames, uh, you know, that is good. You know, doctor is good, <laughs> lawyer is good, yeah. right? And 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 you know, other other vocations are, are bad that are lower in a comparison because of yeah. how much money they bring home. But in an environment where we apply good and bad there creates, you know, a space of just being born into a family can, can you know, have pressure in it, even if mum and dad are very supportive um, and, and, and you know, encouraging of, you know, a child's journey. Uh, nonetheless, the mind will go out and play those tricks and, and, and say, how do I maintain the you know, greatest level of survival? And that's, you know, potentially I need to, maintain mum and dad's approval and the only way to do that is to beat them you know or, or achieve you know their their level that i think they they uh you know want me to aspire to um and and hence that harshness um can you talk me through and i hope i got that i hope i got that 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 okay in your mind as well um can, can you talk us a little bit about the the resistance that people uh, <laughs> have towards, you know, this this you know odd concept of being kind and compassionate and, and, yeah. and understanding of oneself. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so uh, Paul, as he was starting uh, using this kind of compassion focus, and I think that's probably a good point to make too. Um, Paul deliberately called it compassion focus because the idea is we're going to be using. Um, scientifically supported interventions but we tried to do them perhaps with this compassionate motivation being the kind of key driver to how we engage with with that process so it might be exposure for example we would definitely be doing exposure but as we do exposure we might be orienting it in a compassion focused way um, the same with mindfulness and, and so on so all of those core practices which we see excuse me across therapies uh, are we, you know, if they're supported and the science is indicating this is actually a really key ingredient of change, um, that'll be part of the, the compassion-focused therapy approach. James, if I could just jump in, can you talk us through how how that would look different when you orientate from a compassion perspective? Let's let, let's just use you know exposure as as the intervention. How how does exposure with with compassion look look different, or what are the added elements that you would bring to the table for clients? Yeah, absolutely. So 
well, one of the first things therefore then is is you know as you're connecting with the client um and 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 working with them through that initial kind of connecting uh, therapeutic rapport building and so on um if we're going to use this compassion focused approach part of that will be psychoeducative so talking about you know the fear and how they can be associated and how that's not their fault they didn't choose to fear feel fear and so it's just part of the design of being human it's just built in um and so part of that is trying to create um a, a kind of a de-shaming experience for the client around the origins of whatever the fear or uh, phobia might be if it's the case of a um, exposure and so part of that is to try to help the person not feel ashamed about, you know, having to seek therapy for this or that there's something wrong uh, with them uh, for having um, perhaps this, this really intense fear. So part of that is, hey, no one chooses to have this. Humans, this is this is what goes on. This is part of the human experience. And, of course, that's not your fault. Uh, so then the next part then is, is then moving into, okay, well, one of the ways that we could help with this is through this process of, you know, um, exposure is an interesting word, isn't it? I don't mind the term exposure, but I was hearing people talk about different ways to, uh, you know, refer to that process of exposure. And I heard someone say, well, with kids, I've forgotten the person's name, uh, with kids, they like to use courage quests. I just thought that sounded like a way cooler um, name for exposure, a courage quest. Um, sounded like an adventure, something fun, something I would like to do. Whereas if I was in therapy and a client, a therapist said to me, oh, we're going to do exposure, I'd be like, hang on, what the heck? <laughs> what is exposure? Could you do? <laughs> Exposing feels like you, you've got this nakedness or vulnerability. Um, whereas a courage quest sounds like I'm Indiana Jones. Um, uh, and, and it also like creates intent. It, 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 yeah. it, it creates, you know, what am I potentially going to need to bring forward that's true. Uh, into this space, you know, why am I doing this? And and you know, and it's in many ways that it is a quest where we're we're trying to find out and be curious about what happens. Uh, um, you know, I think I think adults can can benefit ju- just as much as as kids with that type of language because you know we are all you know um, language bound uh, and <laughs> entangled entangled beings. Uh, I love that. I'm. I'll be stealing that one for sure. So thank, thank your colleague, whoever it was. Yeah, um, it was something on Twitter great. I saw and there were all these different names being thrown around and that one just really resonated with me. Um, and I suspect, uh, you know, uh, with many others, uh, but there, there's probably other wonderful ways we could we could call this kind of process of, of um, learning, you know, different, different ways we, we connect with whatever that stimuli or thing is that we're scared of. Um, but then the next part then is after going through all of that, we might kind of create a compassionate mind as we go into that. And so a, a, a kind of compassionate mind requires a number of different things, but the general principle is trying to uh, ground our bodies and kind of bring to mind this kind of um, a compassionate mind that, that kind of has the core characteristics of uh, wisdom. And the wisdom part is this idea that, you know, it's not your fault um, that we're experiencing this, um, yet you're trying to look at ways to be helpful for yourself. Um, uh, then a strength part, and that's that strength that comes from the grounding of the body and the body posture work we might do. And then the committed part, which is, um, you know, I'm going to going to try to engage with what is difficult. 
um, to help bring about a life of meaning uh, for me. So we kind of imagine what it would be like to have, uh, you know, an orientation to life shaped uh, by those three qualities. And we kind of build that a little bit and then bring this compassionate mind into the exposure. Um, and so the idea there being then, as you're going through the exposure, if that exposure hasn't gone, you know, you, you're kind of going through and, you, and you're working through it. If then after the process, a person reflects on their exposure and their self-relating style is still textured highly by self-criticism, there can be this kind of judgmental kind of language. Oh, look, you only did 40% of your hierarchy. That's rubbish. What's wrong with you? Another person would be higher up. I bet the therapist thinks you're weak. <laughs> you know, this kind of stuff can go on if you haven't addressed potentially that inner relating style as they go to do tasks that do have kind of outcomes associated with them. Whereas what we would hope is with this compassionate mind, you'd go through that. And if it didn't go well, be able to validate the pain that's gone with that, but also to be able to then, um, you know, look at uh, encouraging you and, and noticing and reminding you, hey, look at what you've done, look at what you were able to do, and then uh, encourage to, to try again, um, uh, maybe not immediately, but encouraging again to commit, if you will, to, to the action. In, in many ways, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that there's almost like a, a, a parenting style or approach that, that, that comes from seeing that part inside you and, and, and or maybe not in parenting, a, a relationship is a better, better, better language, I think. Um, there's, there's a, an understanding or an observation of there being a part of you and, you know, how can someone relate to those parts? You know, whether it is the critical part, which you know, might actually be the protector, uh, that's kind of saying, "Hurry up!" You know, move on. You know, yeah, you're going to be left behind. You're 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 pathetic. You know, everyone else is is better and faster, and you know, your 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 therapist is is you know wasting their time on you. Yes. Whatever it might be that 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 you know is kind of. Um, uh, bringing that forward is, you know, in some sense, how do we relate to that, see that, uh, and then also, I suppose, unpack that to, to you know, look at the mode modality that it's coming from, or, or the intent, and, and relating to it as, as you say, I think from, from from that from a place of wisdom and strength, and and, and maybe even a commitment to learn from that rather yeah, than yeah. to achieve something. Well, uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's 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 amazing because. Um, you know, and this kind of ties into your earlier questions around the fears and resistances. Um, as we start to bring that in, um, you know, fears and resistance pop up immediately. Things like, you know, won't compassion. If I was self-compassionate, won't that just mean I drop my standards? Uh, I won't be motivated. I won't push myself hard enough. So these kinds of things can come up. Um, but equally, um, if you were to, to use a different example and ask them, um, you know, if this was someone really close to you, like a friend who you cared about, uh, who was going through the same process of using the exposure example and was trying to do it and then had an experience which didn't go so well and they were upset, what would you say to them? Or how would you feel towards them? And, and, and almost immediately they'll say things like, oh, my God, you did so well there. I mean, this is so difficult. I can see how stressed out you are, yet there you are trying. This is just fantastic. Um and you're like, okay, so 
that's what you've offered them. That's fantastic. How do you how do you feel about doing that towards yourself? And they're like, oh no, no way in the world. And it's kind of like, well, what makes you want to say that to them? Oh, you know, you know, I'm just trying to help them. And so it's like, how do you feel about offering yourself that that same kind of? Oh no, no, no. So you know, there's already they know the wisdom of how to help someone else to encourage, you know, to encourage them. You know, my son's six and a half, and uh, whenever he tries something new and um, recently he's been really pushing the boundaries with his bike riding when he falls off like I'm not yelling at him and screaming and telling him he's failed and he's an idiot um, you get close right you get close you, hey you okay you check him out um, you change your tone of voice subtly and all of these um, subtle changes in closeness eye contact uh, gentleness of voice you know these are all trying to not only make the other person uh, feels safe, but also encourage them to try again at something they've just learned dangerous, right? To get back on and have another go. And so you might gentle it a little bit, but then you pick up the energy and you're like, you are doing great. I reckon you can go again, you know, and then off they go. And the idea is, you know, compassion is wanting to encourage you to have a go, but it's trying to do it in a way um, which is helpful as opposed to demeaning or making you feel like you're lousy. Um, so a lot of people really identify or really strongly rely on this kind of uh, fear-based drive. Um, and what we're kind of suggesting, which is a lot of the co competition aspect, but what we're kind of suggesting, there is another way which we think long-term will be more helpful and encouraging um, to help you flourish. And that's more from a, a green-based uh, drive for what you're, you're striving for um, however still knowing things are dangerous and that's why you're doing it with a therapist together in a collaborative manner because it is something that really is still bringing up a lot of pain mm -hmm. it's interesting because we we often and our you know our education system is in in many ways set up this way that the fact that we do grading uh, yeah. says uh, says something there, there's inadvertent messages going on rather than asking students to complete tasks uh, and still giving feedback the fact that yeah. there's a grade attached to it immediately goes out and, and, and sets up a different space you know I, I, I remember actually doing our masters um, uh, some time ago now and there was for I think it was one semester um, that uh, they they the school changed the um, the approach and they said we're not grading it's it's going to be pass fail. Oh yeah. And uh, the cohesiveness that came about in terms of the group, you know, we immediately established a study group, so we all got together and we'd sit around and re we'd round table, you know, all these case conceptualized sort of you know uh, studies that we needed to do and sharing all of our resources and everyone was kind of bringing each other up and so on and so forth it was it was it was absolutely beautiful to watch mm. um you know and it was a stark difference to to the competition based one and and sadly it returned back um i don't know what they're doing today but it did return back and you know i i, I remember all of us scratching our heads going 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we learned so much that semester, um, yeah. and, and our competence must have gone up. You know, because we were we were so much more engaged. You know, we, we were no longer under threat and trying to study. We we're actually being encouraged and enjoying it much more. And 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 that's what we're kind of. I suppose that's what you're saying here is is, you know, even whether it's learning a skill or you know about yourself. It doesn't require cracking the whip. It doesn't have to be a competition-based space. It can be, you know, one from support, kindness, compassion, you know, curiosity, uh, and you know, uh, the research backs that and, and says that there's there's really good, you know, long-term outcomes. And I'm I'm assuming long-term is the key here because uh, I'm I'm pretty sure we could go and crack the whip and get people to perform super yeah, high yeah. um but there's a difference between outward performance in terms of you know how many widgets did you make uh <laughs> versus how do you relate internally is that is that right yeah i mean i mean you're, the example you gave just before it was fantastic about how these external levers can be pulled and it can immediately shift how we start to see others and, and support each other. And so if you've got that kind of safe and get, encouraging environment given to you, one of the, the the automatic things you'll start to see is cooperation and connectedness just start to flow out, uh, which is which is obviously um, what we're trying to do somewhat um, internally for clients as well. Sometimes it's trying to work out where are these rules come from, you know, how long have these rules been around, um, you know, and, and often in, in, in CFT, it's a case of, um, you know, the rules there, so I'm not a failure, you know. Um, but it, it, as Paul would kind of comment on, um, fear of failure is kind of like a mid-level fear in, in CFT. Um, so it kind of goes down a, a deeper level again. So what would be the fear of failing? You know, what, what would be the worry there? And then the worry behind that is typically connected to this idea of, well, people don't want to be around someone. Uh, who who's a failure so there's this sense of underlying fear of I'll be disconnected uh, from others and people won't want to be with me um, which is kind of you know a core fear uh, for many um, but that idea that's connects- that rejection evolutionary model that you know yeah, I'm yeah. rejected I'm, I'm alone and therefore you know I can be attacked I don't have anyone to to, to um, you know support me Absolutely. So like a lone monkey is a dead monkey. Humans are hypersocial. We need people from the moment we're born to the moment we we leave the world. And the idea of nomadic tribes and movement, you know, and and it's it's dark at night. If you were to be lost, you would hope someone would remember and not forget you and come looking for you because otherwise it could be, you know, very dangerous and dire situation indeed. So the idea of not being connected is, uh, is is a core fear. Uh, particularly for mammals uh, and, and, and humans. And the idea then is in school contexts or super competitive environments, making mistakes is almost stigmatised. You know, you can't make a mistake. And so, and you see this in the class environment all of the time, like, you know, I'm a, a lecturer at, at UQ and um, our courses uh, in the postgrad still have uh, grades attached, but uh, a lot of the work is competency-based where you're getting them to, to practice skills and uh, with each other. But there's this great fear of going into practicing those skills in front of each other out of the fear of what if I make a mistake? You know, you'll think I'm not a good therapist or, you know, you'll question why I got led into the program. I'll be exposed. <laughs> I'll be exposed, that's right. <laughs> Perfect. 
Um, I mean, I remember experiencing that myself, you know, going through that process as well um, of, you know, or who's watching me do this or who am I paired with or is, is the the teacher around watching me? But the idea is, is kind of, you know, often when someone picks up on a mistake, uh, you know, uh, and we're judged on the mistake, we're kind of disconnected from what they were trying to do and the process and often the, the kind of history they've got with making mistakes is you just got to try harder, um, which ties into the more you do, you know, uh, and it, it's not very clear. What do you mean harder? Um, and so on. Whereas really you want people to, to have this kind of uh, freedom to bounce around um, when, when learning these things, um, giving them an opportunity to play with, with these uh, uh, concepts and strategies we're giving so that they can start to understand how they function and, and play out. You know, in, in, in artificial intelligence designs, um, they've tested whether or not if we pre-program them before putting them in with rules versus don't give them any real programming and let them just play and just make mistakes and then let them into the system what, what AI programming works best. And the ones where they just let them play and learn out all the dynamics themselves um, is more successful um, once integrated into systems. And I sometimes feel like we lose that um, as humans a lot of the time, like just even as a parent, like, you know, we can be so critical of ourselves of getting it right constantly. And it's like um, we lose the, the, the that playfulness that comes with being a parent and, and connecting with the kids, knowing that um, we don't have to have the right answer to how we parent uh, uh, you know, every second of every day, um, because uh, they'll just burn you out. Mm-hmm. I I love that question about uh, you know how long has that rule been around? Because <laughs> it really you know brings that back to m- most people are going to talk about their childhood. Yeah. You know, they're gonna they're gonna realize that it happened very early, and and you know, it creates that conversation of a you know functional analysis around you know. Mm. How did that come about? Why did that come about? You know, what was it trying to to achieve at that point in time? You know, and really, how was it reinforced and and therefore adopted? You know, because it it, it ended up being the 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 ruling um, you know uh, uh, rule, <laughs> um, and so we 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 tend to live by that. I, lo- I love that 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 um, particular sort of you know, phrasing and questions. I, I think it really unpacks so much for clients it it yeah starts a you know a very curious um uh, thought um mm. uh, or, or you know line of a line, line of thought and you know i suppose that that place of curiosity also is fairly compassionate and i'm i'm, I'm yeah, yeah. That even from talking to you that that so much of this whether it's about parenting it's not trying to place uh, a, a certain outcome but rather Yes. Uh, how can you be yes. um, toward that? So whether whether it's us as clinicians, how can I be with my clients, uh, yeah. or potentially even how I can be with myself in 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 session, and obviously for the client about how they can be with their uh, you know rules, thoughts, you know beliefs, fears, judgments, etc. You yeah, know, no, exactly. Um, what you've just kind of summarized there is, is, is exactly what we're kind of after from a, a kind of a compassion focused uh, kind of lens is starting to recognize that there, you know, we can take 
so much responsibility for so much that has happened to us that it is actually um, not really things you had control over. Like, you know, you, you didn't ask to be born. There's a lot of birth lottery involved. You know, you weren't asked to be born at this point of time, this particular region, and with all of this stuff going on. Um, yet we can take a lot of um, ownership for for where we find ourselves in, in a certain context. And so that de-shaming part that Paul really tries to emphasise and hit at any given moment is crucial to try to shift the person into a more playful orientation. It doesn't mean that they're seeing their distress in a dismissive way, not at all. Um, but the idea is if you can start to de-shame the person, you're kind of moving them out, uh, out of uh, a mindset which is really textured by competitiveness, whereas where I am seen as either inferior or superior, um, rather more into um, a compassionate reassuring where mistakes are just part of the journey and we can't stop those things from happening. Uh, but wouldn't it be great if you were less scared of when they did happen because you were able to support yourself in a way um, that was able to validate you and encourage you to continue to, to, to pursue or pivot or do whatever it is um, that allows you to, to live a life of meaning. Um, and so drawing on a, a lot of attachment theory is kind of critical to Paul, So he, which is, of course, an, an evolutionary model. Um, so, you know, part of it is trying to create within the person their own inner safe haven so they can calm them and, and, and help compose themselves and ground themselves when, um, you know, the thing hits the fan. Um, and at the same time, give them this secure base so that they can take on something which they know is challenging, a bit scary, a bit of a risk. Um, but it's something that they want to explore and, and go for. Um, and so they've got a freedom or, you know, an opportunity to feel safeness. And what we mean by safeness is, you've got that kind of sense that I can go out and explore, knowing that if it does not go well, you can come back as that internal safe haven. Or if you can't do that necessarily yourself, you've got people around you you are willing to turn to, as opposed to what we tend, well, many of us tend to do is kind of, you know, bottle up, mask and hide. Is that de-shaming uh, process more of the upfront, uh, you know, the the earlier stages in in um, uh, compassion focused therapy. Uh, yep. You know, from from a place of you know, you're not responsible for all of these aspects. You know, you might be responsible for some of your actions, certainly, um, uh, but that also still needs to be considered within context and also, you know, within the environment and obviously depending on age and so on and so forth, but all the other things around you, um, you know, are, are completely out of your um, control, you know, and, and, you know, that includes, you know, automatic thoughts. That, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that there is this ongoing stream of thoughts that is going to be critical. Um, you know, maybe it was said from somewhere or maybe it was, you know, built into the system through language, competition, uh, and and the like, but uh, that uh, you know we're trying to you know, not be beholden to you know being responsible for how everything has turned out, or or even who we are as human beings, or what's happened to us. You know, that yeah. sometimes we can 
you know, clients can feel that, you know, what has occurred to them is, you know, because of them. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, that 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 process of, of what we find is when you go through that de-shaming, um, the, the client's energy really picks up about trying to recognize, yeah, and, and I want to try something different or I want to do something that make amends or repairs. There is an immediate responsibility almost picked up straight after they've been de-shamed, whereas if you shame someone, Often what happens is the person becomes defensive or justifies what it is that they did. Yes, but, you know, this was going on or something like that. Or they'll try to humiliate the person back. Oh, yeah, but you're just in your early days as a therapist, aren't you? (laughs) You know, if you were to (laughs) inadvertently shame your client, you might get that response back. Um, So the idea is once we get through that kind of, you know, uh, trying to wherever we can uh, help the client feel de-shamed with their experience, uh, it's typically what follows is an immediate kind of, um, you know, desire uh, to, well, I want it to change. And that's language around responsibility taking. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we sometimes use examples, simple ones, like, you know, if you come back and you to a car park and you park your car and it's hit and it's been hit by someone, you know, it's not your fault that it's been hit. You've parked it in the lines and everything like that. But sure, it's still your responsibility to, you know, get the car out of there, get it prepared, do whatever it needs to to be done um, for you to get it home. So, you know, there are many things that happen in life that definitely not our fault, but we still take responsibility for. Um, And we sometimes joke around this issue in therapy groups. So we might say something like, you know, um, you know, we take responsibility for hygiene and spend a lot of time even practicing and, and with kids developing the skills of toilet training, etc. There's no one fault that they have to do these things. <laughs> like go to the toilet. <laughs> you know, just because you have to go to the toilet doesn't mean you're a bad person. You know, it's just part of what we do. Um, and it's about, you know, learning how to work with it um, in a way which is, you know, going to be okay and not cause harm. And it's the same with these other ways, other parts of our, our, our human experience, such as our mind. So how do we work with our mind? And, and tragically, a lot of people, as you know, Nesh, come come to come to therapy, um, not knowing a lot about how how their mind works. And again, not because it's their fault, because it's just not part of the curriculum. You know, it's just you know the idea is I should be able to shut off my mind when I want to, um, and of course, it just doesn't work like that. And you know, that's not the fault of the clients. It's just tragically, m- me myself coming into psychology, I wasn't aware you know, that this was how the mind works. So unless you're in our field and in our space, um, often um, this kind of understanding of, of how the mind works and how the mind works when it's around other minds is just not common knowledge. Just picking up from from what you said, and, and I'm, I'm hoping I get this right, and I'm, I'm not by any means suggesting that this is how therapy, te- you know, works, but uh, in, in, in some sense, it can be times where if we nurture the the, the red circle, um, the you know the protector um, space, there, there there becomes an impetus of, of saying, well, if I don't have to necessarily put all of my efforts into suppressing this, holding this down, <laughs> taking responsibility for all these things, um, it kind of deshackles me from 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 that to, to a degree, and it starts moving into the blue zone. Yeah, yeah. Um, of, of saying, you know. You know what? What 
what what can I do? Um, you know, how can I drive some of this forward and 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 you know my, some of my values. Um, yeah, sure. You know, also appreciating what and some of the drivers of the protector were and and so on. Um, uh, and I'm hope I'm capturing this. Uh, you know, somewhat okay. Where where does the contentment the, the the it's the green that that's the green circle right um yeah no it's spot on um no and you're capturing that great i mean part of it is is if you're constantly and i think this is similar to act like if you're constantly monitoring sort of symptom reduction it's not really letting you have an orientation of where you're wanting to go um it's like that classic if you're just monitoring am i asleep yet am i asleep yet am i asleep yet that just keeps you aroused and, and you don't go to sleep um so what we're wanting is okay yes these things are here and they're unpleasant totally get that and we would like to see these not to be as intense or as strong for you as frequently as they are um one way of working with that is trying to what we would say is get into this kind of compassionate mind and start to think about what it is that you would like to be doing, how how it is that you'd like to be interacting or talking with others, how you'd like to be feeling towards yourself, et cetera, and then starting to work along, along that framework. Um, the green circle is a, it kind of helps with that. Um, and so uh, we've got the threat system and, and the drive system, and these two systems are very activating systems, uh, very doing-based systems. And this links into your body's physiological infrastructure, uh, particularly into the sympathetic nervous system of the autonomic nervous system. And so it has that energy to move and to act. Uh, and obviously that's critical. Uh, and often for some people, you know, say depression, um, that drive energy is completely gone. Uh, so a lot of work would be done trying to get them going again and, and things like behaviour activation and things like that, you know, a part of that process trying to get the, the actions occurring again. Uh, the third circle um, is the, the contentment or safeness circle, and we often call it green. Now, green and blue circles, um, the drive circle, they're both positive, right? So the drive, there's some great positivity in there, feelings like happiness, joy, excitement, et cetera, when things are going well. Um, but it's high energy, positive affect, whereas the green circle still positive affect, but it's low energy. So, you know, um, feelings of a, a sense of calmness or contentment or peacefulness. Um, and that system's physiologically linked in uh, to the parasympathetic system. And so these two systems play out within your body through the vagus nerve and, and ideally uh, the parasympathetic well, not ideally, just the way it works, it, it applies almost opposing uh, force on those organs compared to the sympathetic system. So the sympathetic system gets your heart rate going. Um, without a parasympathetic system, it'd be like 160, 80 beats um, a minute. The parasympathetic system acts as a brake to slow it down. So it's more in that range of, you know, 55, 70 beats uh, per minute. Likewise for metabolism, you're sympathetically driven, um, you're not metabolizing your food because the energy is used for the actions. Uh, whereas if you're um, parasympathetically driven, um, you start to shift into uh, a, a rest and digest state and you, you start to metabolize because energy can be used that way because you're not trying to do anything. Um, and so often we'll ask clients, um, okay, here are your three circles. Um, could you draw for us on the board or on the sheet of paper um, 
the size of your circles with how much time you spend in them. So the more time you spend in it, the bigger it would be. And you often find uh, very large uh, red circles, um, sometimes a moderately sized blue, um, but the green circle is like a little dot um, over in the corner. Um, and you'll, you'll kind of ask, okay, well, why is it in the corner? And they're like, well, firstly, um, I don't really know what to do to get contentment um, unless I ran away from my dependence <laughs> and was on a deserted island or something like that. Um, secondly, it's just I just don't even feel like I can get there. It's just too far away. So part of the early, and what we would sort of say is that kind of configuration is more linked to a, a kind of competitive motivation of there's all this kind of badness in the red and I'm trying to overcome the badness by focusing on my blue, by pushing myself, working myself hard. Um, whereas a, comp a compassionate uh, motivation, um, those three circles are still absolutely critical, but there's just a greater balance between them. So the early stages, we tried to develop the green circle more. And initially with the green circle, what we'll do is uh, sort of body posture, exercises, um, uh, facial expression, um, in a tone of voice, uh, little things like that. You know, then you might bring in some soothing rhythm, breathing or mindfulness practices and so on um, in order to, to develop the green uh, so that it can be used as a system that can help regulate threat and drive when they come on. It's not um, in the distance. I really love that distinction between low energy and high mm. energy activities because I – and definitely go out and and and, and see the different uh, personalities that, that 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 come into our rooms, and obviously, you know, also self reflecting and, and and looking at you know where am I, you know, where where is where am I, you know, filled up, and where do I spend a lot of time in, and and you know, uh, I could definitely go out and tell you what it looked like when I was you know eighteen or when I was you know thirty two or you know, where I am today, and they'd be all vastly different in actual fact. Um, yeah, you know, looking yeah. at very, very different spaces if we took an average of of, of those. Um, but I love that from, a you know, uh, seeing how one is very active and the other one is, is you know, as, as contentment is, it's, it's very much a cognitive thing. It's about, you know, being comfortable, um, you know, which is something that we have to, uh, untangle for ourselves and, and come to terms with and, and actually begin to enjoy, you know, to, to yeah. learn how to do it. You know, like most of us, you know, most of us try and be content through through blue rather than actually yeah. developing green, you know, or, yeah. or being in yeah. the green. But it's a good start. But, you know, we can even, you know, push how hard can I meditate or, you know. Oh, completely. Can... <laughs> I mean, they're just fantastic points you make. Um you know, sometimes, um, you know, clients after a while will, will just uh, intuitively just say, I'm recognising that I'm really, you know, blue circling my green. <laughs> so when, I, when I'm trying to get my groundedness, I'm just like going, do it, do it, do it, like with this intensity, um, which brings up some threat because I'm worried about if I'm doing it right or not. Um, and also they'll kind of blend the circles sometimes. They'll kind of draw it in the blues overlapping the red. And it's like, absolutely. So they can see how these things interact. And it's really important that, you know, we're not suggesting in CFT that um, we want a perfect balance in every setting, right? So the idea is you want 
th this kind of configuration um, to be congruent with the setting that you're in as best it can be. So it kind of can be flexible, I suppose, in, in, and adaptable um, in those settings. Um, you know, you, you don't want to do something that has some urgency, um, say, um, and some um, high stakes to it. Um, say, for example, um, neurosurgery in this kind of really relaxed, kind of contented way, um, because then, you know, you can miss things, right? Um, but equally, if you're just too focused on the threat, um, you know, you might get uh, a bit in, a bit anxious and get a hand wobble or start to panic a little bit. So the idea is you want these to support themselves, but in certain contexts, one system might be slightly more dominant uh, than another. And these can be triggered off by external factors too. So you could go into work feeling, uh, you know, big blue, moderate green and, and low red, and then all of a sudden your boss, who is kind of very toxic, kind of greets you at the door and say, where's the report? And that immediately shifts um, that three-circle orientation. So it's very intrapersonal and we can do mm. things to regulate it, but it's also interpersonal um, as well. And, and, of course, contextual when you take into consideration um, just the class environment that you had before you talked about. Immediately, no grades, blue and green connectedness, but you throw the grades back in, it's more blue-red kind of, you know, com competing. I love that psychological flexibility in that space in terms of it's not trying to achieve one over another, but rather it's contextual base. It's functionally, you know, uh, analyzed as to what's going to give me benefit. And obviously in a genuine threat uh, situation, which there is very few, uh, yeah, sure. uh, at least yeah. for most of us, and, and, yeah. and that's not taking away from others that might be finding themselves, you know, in domestic violence or something like that on a regular wow. basis. But in a genuinely uh, threat um, space, you will be predominantly red, um, you know, in, in, in the red zone. Having said that, it's still very useful to yeah. have a little bit of green um, to, to, to potentially, you know, understand what are my... Uh, choices you know here um so that i'm not being too impulsive you know depending on, on on the context i really love that and and obviously you know if it, if, if the boss says you know where's my report yeah, yeah. so <laughs> often the red could could get inflamed and and if it you know or, or even the blue like okay, i'll go into action mode and i'll yeah, you know and I'll, exactly. I'll i'll get them back on my side um, yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly. Some, some green can help there as well. I, I love that it's very visual. It's very, you know, uh, yeah. adaptable and ado uh, easy to adopt from a client's perspective to 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 talk in these, you know, three three circles. Um, you know, to, to therefore obviously observe themselves going through life, uh, and and decide on what's the balance I need in this particular moment. You know, that, mm. that we're not striving for. A particular arrangement but rather what arrangement will help me right now exactly um and and, and so a, a client intuitively gets that and it brings in this dynamic aspect of you know uh, externalizing drawing moving around this kind of stuff um which makes it fun um, but also de-shames because it's kind of like you know sometimes you can clients can come in and can have real difficulty with their um emotional language um, you know, sometimes the, the extent in which you get for some is good and bad. Um, not all of the, the, the kind of 
granular nuance in, you know, irritation, frustration, anger, rage, you know, they're just all bad kind of thing. And so it immediately gives a language um, as well around red, blue, green, and you you get so much more from it um, in terms of understanding where they are and what their functions were at that point when you talk about a red circle because, you know, okay, there was some danger around, they were feeling threatened. And then you can kind of work around that space in terms of, you know, what was going on in the body uh, for the client to start to build their sense of, well, was it more of a situation where I wanted to run away, which is more of my anxiety, or was it more of I was noticing I was defending myself and fighting back? And so you can kind of get more into the anger part perhaps. But it just frees it up a little bit, and, and that's really cool with the teenagers as well. And so one of my PhD students, um, Dylan Maloney-Gibb, he's looking at using um, this kind of three-circle orientation um, to accessing uh, how how uh, teens are feeling, and so they just have their phone and they just use their their fingers, <laughs> their thumb, and you know make it big or make it small, as opposed to reading the the survey item around you know don't spend too much time thinking about this, just go with your gut instinct. When it comes to living your day on a daily basis on a scale of one to seven, not at all to seven extremely, <laughs> you know, which is kind of verbose. There's a lot in there. Um, Whereas uh, just looking at it, sure, you have to do a little bit of initial explaining. um, But once you've done it, bang, it kind of sticks. And then um, a lot of the rationale as to the different uh, exercises you might do are just uh, immediately obvious. So there's a kind of empowering um, for the client as well. I I love that idea of, you know, expanding or contracting with a circle you know that visual we're, we're so used to doing things like that on our phones and the like versus a um and i never know is, is it a, is it lick it or like it um oh, yeah so, yeah uh, yeah that's a good point you know, i always that, say that, like it but that, certainly that, both yeah, I mean, it, it always it always feels you know a, a bit nonsense, and I think you know not nonsense. My apologies. It feels a bit laborious um, versus going out and saying this is how it feels. You know, like it feels this size. Um, I, I think you know, obviously, an algorithm can quite comfortably say, okay, well, that's a five out of you know the the the, the seven that we allow for um, yes. versus actually hitting a five. I think you'd get much better results than than. Um, you know, that, that whole problem of, you know, yes to everything, you know, maximum to everything versus going out and saying, well, yeah, this one's a little bit different to this one. I think maybe how we evaluate and, 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 and assess things, you know, with, with, with something like that in mind, um, I'm thinking, you know, beyond uh, compassion focused therapy as well, yeah, it could be a good way to, you know, for, uh, to, to apply, you know, in, in research moving forward. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's exactly what we're kind of interested in as well is, is also not only, um, you know, because it's got so much uh, so much application um, capacity, it's kind of like not only can you think about it and how I am relating to my client, am I blue driven because i got to get through 10 clients or i got to make sure that they're getting the outcomes that they want, uh, for example, um, but also what's the, the room space like too? Like is there anything I can do to shape the room differently um, to shift it away from, say, um, a, a, a threat-based kind of me behind a desk talking to a client versus in the same kind of uh, chairs even. One's, one could be bigger, one could be smaller. All of these little subtle things can shift how the room feels, which means like a teacher in a classroom can get a sense of what's the temperature like in the room. Is it more threat kind of temperature mm-hmm. or is there something I can do to make it um, a greener temperature um, to, to create that sense of uh, safeness amongst the amongst the kids. 
it's 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 beautiful to hear you talk in that in that way because I've, I've I've spent so much time and at least in my mind about developing, uh, you know, uh, the, the the practice um, uh, that I work in uh, from the perspective of how we set up an environment that you know actually considers the, the, these things and and not in terms of oh yeah you know we use this color scheme it's like no no at every level. Know, like yeah. the, the fact that we've got these type of curtains that are a bit more wavy and the fact that we might have, you know, shutters that, 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 that come down or, or um, you know, draw down to reduce the, the temperature um, or, you know, the lighting that they're all on a dimmer switch and so on and so forth, like to, to the nth degree, because it, you know, it, it means, you know, I believe, you know, that it, that it adds, um, you know, Every little bit counts, and 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 and, and you know that's. I mean, we definitely know that as parents, and you know, as humans, in actual fact. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm. I'm uh, oh yeah, you're about trying to create a safe environment. I remember reading a, a really powerful cross-cultural psychology book. I've forgotten the name of it. I can't believe I, the the author escapes me. But they talked about post the Rwandan genocide. Um, the Americans sent a whole host of mental health professionals to help. Um, you know, everyone processed through the, the, the intense trauma experienced through that genocide. You know, so many f- people died and family members died and some terrible things were being done, right? So trying to help with the post-genocide experience, they sent all these psychologists to help. And it, it got to a point where the, um, the head of health for the Rwandan government pulled aside the American um a contingency and just kind of said we, we we don't need your help anymore we have to send you back home um and they're like why is that and they're like well you're making things worse you're, you're taking people into these rooms with nothing on them and they can't see outside and it's fluorescent lit room kind of thing whereas what we do when we talk about things we sit outside with other people and often they'll be singing or something like that in order to process difficulty or pains in the past and what you're doing is completely different to how what we would would process, um, mm. you know, pain, hurt on, on that kind of, you know, uh, scale of tragedy. And it's kind of like we can be so quick to impose kind of this is how we we, we do things, uh, forgetting perhaps the, co- the context of where the person's come from um, and how we can make some subtle variations in our environment in order to to make them feel, feel safer. Mm. Um and in a room which has yeah. no windows, no greenery, no nothing, you know, it's not a particularly pleasant. It reminds me of the, the TV show Severance. You know, you go into Severance, they've got an inner and outer world, and in this inner world, it's just all sterile and white. Mm-hmm. It's, not it's almost pleasant. like from, from, from even from an evolutionary perspective, talking about that culture, um, you know, with the Rwandan example, having something that is that you know clinical and kind of stark yeah. you know that that's going to create a very large red circle oh, and, yeah. and and then it's like you know let's try and process through this well you know that's actually yeah. going to be awful is you know it's, it's it's actually counterproductive and can make things worse you know just yeah. ju- ju- just from that perspective so which is what was happening for them and so yeah it, it, it's so true i remember talking to to one um uh, cross-cultural psychologist and in therapy she was saying um, uh, that you know often speaking in a second language can be useful because it can provide this kind of um, in therapy it can provide a little bit of distance they can speak perhaps more 
openly about the difficulty because it's no longer enmeshed in, say, cultural um, tradition, perhaps. And so there's a freedom that can become speaking in English and therapy. However, at the same time, it also comes with a huge drawback because there are times where they can't fully um, uh, uh, describe what it is that they're feeling and what's going on. It'll be on the tip of their tongue. And she says, I just tell them at those moments, um, say it as if you were speaking in your mother language. So use your mother language and just say it aloud what it is you're experiencing. She goes, the way they then express it, you can pick up through all of the nonverbals what it is that they're feeling and meaning. And so much more comes out. And you've given space for them to be able to do that. And so it's that kind of recognition of seeing it again uh, in them and giving them an opportunity, inviting them to, to express it in that way um, in a safe environment and then allowing them to go, how, how are you feeling now or what happened then? And um, and she says often those moments are, are very emotionally powerful. Absolutely powerful stuff, powerful stuff. James, I'm, 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 uh, uh, I'm mindful that you've also got a book that you have, have, have written because I... I'd love to, you know, learn learn more, and I'm sure there's a lot of others, you know, listening to this as well who'd like to find out more. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the book, how it came about? It's it's choose compassion, why why it matters, and how it works. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about you know your book, uh, what you cover, uh, and also you know you know where 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 we can go out and find it um, to, to find out more. Oh no, thanks thanks Nesh. Yeah, uh, I started writing this book just prior. Uh, to COVID. So the publishers um, contacted me and said, would I be interested in writing a book about compassion? And um, uh, I sat down and had a cup of coffee um, and got excited by the idea of Big Blue Circle and um, and went, okay, let's do it. And then a week later, COVID hit us. And um, it's taken about two and a half years during that process to write it. Um, and it, I just have to I thank my wife because I'd be underneath the stairs trying to chip away at this in the evenings. Um, and she had her hands full with the kids. Um, and I'm just red circle trying to pump out words. Uh, but the book itself um, tries to first uh, uh, kind of unpack what we mean by compassion. Like what is compassion? Uh, and, you know, we kind of define it as a, a sensitivity to suffering uh, in yourself, but also in others. Um, and then with a commitment to try as best we can to alleviate or, or prevent the suffering. So then I kind of unpack, you know, uh, uh, where this kind of, you know, construct came from, because it's kind of on the surface simple, but gets complex very quickly. Um, you know, we're compassionate to some, but not others. Um, a big fear, which you kind of mentioned earlier, is if I'm compassionate to these others, I'll lose a whole bunch of my resources. Right. And if we give this group all of these resources, well, then I don't have it and I might need it because I'm going to fall on hard times at some point, perhaps. Um, so these can be fears and blockers um, to compassionate behaviors amongst people and amongst groups. Um, so I kind of unpack that kind of stuff, but then go into how compassion kind of develops within the family um, and how those experiences and family um, can act as either great promoters uh, of compassion, but equally um, can create people to start to see compassionate uh, in a fear kind of oriented way. They can start to become scared of it uh, for very valid reasons. Uh, and then sort of talk about compassion programs and how they can help cultivate uh, compassion and how people can have difficulties with self-compassion. And that kind of takes up the first kind of 
after two thirds of the book. And then I start to look at compassion across cultures and um, how compassion can collapse pretty quickly. It's interesting. We can have great compassion for one person um, who is suffering, but as soon as that number increases to two, um, our level of compassion drops a little bit. Um, so the greater the number, it's almost paradoxical, the greater the number of suffering, um, uh, the lesser our compassion becomes. And there's a couple of theories as to why that's the case. Uh, one big one is um, this term called pseudo-inefficacy, which is referring to this idea that, well, with one person, I've got a sense of efficacy of being helpful. But if it's two, I can't be as helpful to two people as I can one. And because of that kind of discrepancy, my compassion towards the two has dropped. Um, and then, of course, if you scale that up to millions, um, you know, what could I possibly do to help? That, that that jumped to mind, at least from a logical perspective, immediately that, you know, when you've got one, you could do something about that. And I can I can be very action orientated, jump into the blue yeah. um, as where, you know, if, it, if it's it's if it's quite large. Um you know, it can be daunting and, and you know, what can I achieve? And, and paradoxically, you know, here we are in a world where we're actually trying to to, to do more of that. Um, but that's maybe because we are safer. The, 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 yeah. fact that, the fact that now, you know, because my children are safe and they're well and I don't have to worry about the individual, yeah, I can yeah. now actually look at the group, you know, more and more. But uh, I'm, I'm sure if I lived in, even Rwanda today or, 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 you know, Sierra Leone or where it might be in, you know, those, you know, many different countries in the, in the world. Uh, I think I'd be very still um, focused on that. The one, um, it'd be much yeah. harder to be, um, you know, looking at my, at my, you know, wider community. Yeah, no, it gets complicated very, mm. very quickly. Um, and, and that's no one's fault. It's just, it, it's so tricky. Um yeah, and so uh, you can get the book um, uh, online, or it's in in uh, you know all good bookshops as well. So you can go check it out there if you'd want to uh, get a hard copy from a shop. But um, yeah, if you just typed in uh, "choose compassion" on Google, but um, I can also send you uh, a link, Nash, and um, as well. We'll definitely make sure that we 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 put it as part of the blurb in 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 um, on our web web, web page as well. Um, uh, online, I should probably where, just where quickly say, um, I'm so sorry, Nash, I should probably I'll cut you off there. Um, I should probably quickly say the book isn't really about uh, a training book on how to become a compassion-focused therapist, um, nor is it a, a self-help book. Um, uh, the, the book is really about trying to unpack what we mean uh, by compassion, although there are a couple of chapters where I do focus very much on mental health. And um, and do take you through a couple of little exercises, but they're very minor within the book. Just to just to clear that up. No, no, thank, thank you. And look, I, I I appreciate that that space. I think there's there's you know value in 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 all types of books, but that that space is certainly one that I lean into a whole lot more. Uh, I find that uh, you know understanding something from a um, philosophical level uh, uh, is much stickier and tends to integrate and and, and has more, much more application in, in my mind um you know then you know, trying to become a therapist i think you you you, you um are a human first and, and yes, by understanding yes. these things uh, uh and obviously with our training helps as to how how to apply them but uh, the understanding is is and the nuances around it hence you know <laughs> today's conversation 
um, is, is is so important. Um, uh, the question that I, that I asked just a moment ago is um, uh, where online can people uh, find it? Is, is there a yeah. specific place or, or it's fairly, oh, fairly broad as well? Yeah, no. Um, yeah, uh, you could look at uh, Booktopia, um, Amazon, um, Book Depository, um, all of those uh, places will have them. Um, uh, I mean, you can go to the publisher's website too, um, uh, which is uh, uqp.com.au, um, I want to say. No, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> sure we'll, we'll be able to find it. Now, you're, you're also obviously a senior lecturer in clinical psychology at uh, UQ. Um, yep. uh, do, do you guys have places? Let's give them a quick plug while, while, while we're there because I think I've uh, interviewed you know, a fair of your colleagues as well um, doing great work out there. Oh, um, I've noticed um, on your podcast, uh, Matt Sanders, Alan Pegner and the like, um, there's some terrific, uh, uh, feel very lucky actually um, being able to, to you know, talk to these experts yeah, and get their caliber. ideas. Oh, it's ridiculous. No, lovely, lovely. Thank you uh, so much. Um, how can people get in touch if they did want to find find out more um, through through the, 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 the um, School of Psychology? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I mean, if, type my name into Google James Kirby. It should pop up. Uh, type in uh, School of Psychology if they wanted. I'm on, I'm on Twitter too, um, although Twitter seems to be a funny world. Uh, at the moment, uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at James N. Kirby and I tweet all the time and, and tweet lots of different things, um, all connected uh, to compassion. So, um, and so they can message me on, on there too, but um, very easy to find. Um, brilliant, brilliant. James, thank you so much. I really do uh, uh, appreciate, you know, having the opportunity to talk to you and, and I appreciate you as well for taking you know, the time and, and you know, giving us a, a good 101. I'll be definitely picking up a copy of, 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 of your book as well. Um, it's something that I think, you know, deserves a lot of uh, uh, attention to, to, to read and then, and then chew over. You know, there's, there, there's so much complexity. I know that we've only just very briefly, you know, scratched the surface. There's so much more in there. So I'm eager to get my hands on, on, on a copy. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for your time today. Oh, no, thank you very much. It was awesome. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.